this technology is so assistive to us as humans, and it's a matter of how we like to use it, what will work, and it for each individual is different. Some people like to try things. Some people may do it later, or some people, but it's okay. But it's available. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever. And I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today, I am excited to say that I am joined by my friend, Niraj Patel. Niraj, it's a pleasure to have you on. David, thanks for having. It looks like you're in an amazing spot today with the technology and all the changes. So digital was always important, but I think with AI, digital has become more and more important. Oh, well said. And I'm you know, excited that we have this platform to discuss it. Before we get into anything, though, Niraj, just... Could you tell everyone just who may not know a little bit about your current role? Yeah, my current role is chief information officer for a company called Greystone. What an amazing place. Love that culture, the environment, the caring, which actually helps with deploying technology and getting things done, which is the fun part for any technologist. Yeah, 100%. We do like to start the episode in Raj just with one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave everyone with today? So if you have to pick one thing with the current state of technology, make time to experiment. The technology of AI is moving fast. You have to have a little bit of time, not only on the tech teams, but the business teams to just experiment and try things and get really comfortable with it because we know this wave is coming. But if you don't take that time to experiment and get familiar with the technology and the use cases, I think you're going to fall behind. Absolutely. That type of culture, really, because I think it is, being supportive of that is, is rooted in the culture of an organization. Crucial to innovation, we all know you have to iterate and incorporate feedback and, and build those feedback loops and keep moving. Start small, start somewhere, right? So great, great advice to, to start the episode. Nora, I do want to get into some of the trends that we're seeing, some of the work that you guys are, are doing at Greystone, which I know is super cool. But 
you know, it's a part of disruptive innovators, right? I, originally, I thought it was going to be a tech podcast, but we've had really impactful conversations with leaders like yourself who have worked with, you know, IBM and all these amazing organizations. So really just interested to learn a little bit more about your story. So how, how you started out and how you got to the point that you're in in your career today. You know, everyone's got an amazing journey and I was fortunate to have the journey that I've had so far. Started off like every person that's uh, going to college, right? I went to Temple University close to where I live. But back then, I had an interesting thought process. So this is in the you know late 80s. I did a dual degree, one in finance and one in computer. Back then it was MIS or computer science, right? So I did a dual degree and whatever reason it made me do, whatever came to my mind, I kind of did it. And that was great. Because that actually helped me get my first job. And my first job was with Unisys. But the role they put me in was financial consolidation. And because of the finance degree and the tech degree, you got to learn and do more corporate things. And what's interesting is when I look back at all the steps and as I go through my journey, all these little steps actually build on each other. And your ability to think through different things bring value to the table is many stepping stones. It's not just one thing that happens overnight and you're done. It's all these little things that kind of come forward. And that experience that I had with Unisys on financial consolidation, it was, I, I was getting to talk to people from Asia, people from South America, as they were sending in their numbers to kind of report for a public company. Fast forward, that gets boring, right? Every every quarter you're doing the same thing. And it's like your curiosity says, oh boy, I got to do something more exciting than this. And then I got a job at, at a company called GMAC Mortgage that was doing residential mortgages at that point. Again, that finance and technology background gave me a slight edge versus other people that might have been applying for that job. But to fast forward, that experience in financial consolidations had a big event while I was at GMAC. One late night, you know, everybody has those late Friday nights which you're working away trying to get something done. And all your friends are calling and, hey, let's go out for a beer somewhere. I wound up, you know, finishing up something like eight o'clock at night. I'm walking up and I hear somebody, you know, complaining. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait, she heard complaining in the word technology. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in technology. I got to help, right? That core principle of you got to help. So I went up and, and asked her, what's the problem? And long and behold, she was sending data to General Motors for their financial consolidation. And it was like, oh, I know this. I've seen it from the other side. Let me see what's going on. I uh, helped her with her technology and the data was submitted. But the one thing I learned from being on the opposite side of the, of the box was you wait until you get acknowledgement from the other side that the data has been received successfully. So I just waited with her. It, you know, she said, go. I said, no, I know until I, I get that acknowledgement, we have to redo something. I want to be here, make sure it gets done. Long and behold, we get the acknowledgement and move forward. When I come back to those stepping stones and building and things like that, right after that, I get a call next Monday, I get a call from the CFO who I didn't know was the CFO. I, you got a no name calling in and I'm like, wait a minute, who's this person? My, my cubicle next door, my boss said, Hey, 
that's the CFO. You better pick up that phone really fast. And I did. And he told me to come downstairs. Of course, you're like, what did I do that warrants a CFO calling me so young in your career? I walked into his office, big conference room. The lady I helped was the controller. The person two layers above me, the VP of operations was sitting across to her and the CFO in the middle. And he pulled me in and he said, hey, Naraj, there's a lot of technology people that can do the job. But what I really liked about what I heard was you waited till the completion of the step and you didn't just abandon that situation. So wanted, he thanked me for that. And then he said, let's figure out what to do. What are the next steps? And then I got to do the next steps and kind of explain it. But long and behold, those building steps, those features that kind of drive your career. About a year later, the CFO comes by my cubicle and says, hey, come on, let's go for a walk. He says, hey, I'm going to become the CEO. Oh, by the way, I'm going to make you the VP of operations. Multiple steps above. So again, whatever you do, there is these steps that you look back. And of course, while I'm in it, you never think about these things. But doing the right thing always works. Doing the right thing always takes to the next level. And when you look at it, you're like, wow. And then fast forward from there, a new division was opening up GMAC Commercial, the leader of that group brought me in to be the head of technology, which was a couple of years later. So long and behold, you know, I, I can't even understand how I did it or how I got there, where I got there. All of a sudden you graduate college in 1990. And, and by the time 1995 begins, you're CIO of a division. And when that division got sold to a private equity shop, I had to reevaluate. Do I stay as a CIO? So that, that journey lasted for a long time. So that was from 1995 to 2006. Did a lot of innovative things, partnerships, how to innovate better. That was through the dot-com days, which was the hype of all of hypes, right? Which was great. Learned so much stuff. And then at that point, I was like, okay, what do I do? And I said, look, for me to be a better CIO, I need to understand the other side of the equation. Coming back to my old financial consolidation days, what had happened to me on submitting data, receiving data. So I, I launched a startup, learned what it means to own a software company and sell into the market, learned what it means to be a services company to sell services in the market. So now I had a perspective of not only the buy side, as I call it, but the sell side also. What's it mean to be on the other side? What's it mean? What are the hot buttons for them? And that went from 2006 to 2012, where you were building pieces, you were building software, and you had you know, hundreds of customers and to meet their needs and what it meant. Again, all those lessons learned from being amazed, you know, being great at what you do, but also knowing what the customer wants, knowing what was important. Being from the buy side, I actually could craft a better value prop because I understood what was the value prop on the buy side versus just the sell side, right? So, which was just kind of amazing. And then after that, I got really early on into AI in 2012, worked for a, a company called Fin Mechanica that a U.S. division called Cellex and worked on their license plate reader technology, as well as their smart building. And we were using Columbia algorithms back then. This was forecasting energy 
and how to forecast energy, how to forecast forward, what's it mean, you know, the next best thing to do. Every 15 minutes it was recalculating, but thousands of parameters from IoT, from weather, to kind of make those decisions. You know, I think we did a 2 million square feet office building first, which is like, wow. And then the, the cool part about that one was after it was implemented, it taught me a bunch of few things, human behavior, engineers, when will they accept the technology and say, it's okay to let the technology do the work, which almost took 12 months. When the machine would tell the engineer, hey, it's okay to shut down the AC right now because everybody's going to be leaving. You only need to blow air around. As humans, all of us do the same thing, right? We take time. We say, oh, let me check. Let me double check. So after, you know, six months of it being right, they said, okay, I give up. Just let the computer do what it's supposed to do, you know? which is good, but it teaches you what works, what doesn't work and, and how to think about it and be patient at the right things and don't be not patient for the wrong things. So that, that helped a lot. Then I wound up at IBM, you know, this is where obviously Watson I got to deploy a lot of natural language processing, some blockchain work, as well as a bunch of AI implementations we did, shaped my thinking a lot better, how to think about it from scale, how to think about it from a different value prop, how to put different pieces together. And then after that, I went to a more regional player called DMI that had a lot of government work, as well as a lot of uh, non-government work and launched their AI business, got to do some amazing projects from in the automobile industry, as well as financial services industry. And then fast forward, got me to Greystone two and a half, almost three years ago. And coming back to what I originally was on the buy side. And boy, all those experiences kind of lead you to a place that says, ah, am I better equipped today to do this job? I'll say yes, because it took that journey that long to say, hey, I know the steps, what it takes and what it makes it work. So long journey. It's been, you know, 20 plus years in the financial services and technology industry. But like I said, those lessons learned early on, human care of people, value, always help. Think about the other side, understand, you know, you hear these terms, understand, you know, walk in their shoes, but really walk in their shoes so you can really understand. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, we, I've talked about this before. It's the root of customer experience, right? It's how am I empathizing or putting myself in their shoes and how am I looking at my, you know, there's the end customer. And then as a, an IT leader, there's my internal customers, right? Who I'm serving. Right. And I love how you touched on to, you know, a seemingly simple concept, but you know, I, I, doing the right thing, right? Like I'm at a, a point in my life where I have a, a fairly fluid spirituality, but I believe in something greater than myself in the world. And, you know, I believe in kind of not, I don't believe that we can't like guide our destiny, but I do believe that there's some things that just, if they happen, they're out of my control. Whether you want to call it fate or not is it, it, it really irrelevant, but that's all just to say that I like to think of aligning myself with the universe's will for me, which is to, to do good right? to do good in the world. And when I'm out of alignment with that, you know, I feel it. Right. And so nowadays, like it's, you know, what's my intent? What if I'm approaching a situation? Like, what are my motives? Like, and 
I've built a pause button where if I feel that, that itch, right. I also know that I don't need to act today. You know, as a young executive, I'd feel like I have to, especially in the IT industry where everything's often urgent, right? It's like, okay, we gotta, oh, this happened. We have to go do this or that happened. Like, let me jump on that. Sometimes the best action is no action, right? And to actually, you know, gain that perspective and come back and then do the next right thing. David, you remind me of a story when I was a little boy. I was born in India, came over in the U.S. in fourth grade. My father had come over in 72. My mother had come over in 74. And my brother and I came over in 76. So you, you could probably picture this. In 76, my grandparents dropped us off at the airport, handed us off to a total strangers that basically controlled our destiny to get to the other side. Plane connections in the U.K., coming out to, you know, JFK. And what you taught was really important. It's like, hey, look, there is a system in place. The world is always trying to help you and kind of get you to your destiny and your location. Don't freak out. It's okay. People are going to take you the journey. Sometimes you just have to know when to react, not to react, as you said it. Sometimes you have to just calm down, let the system do its work, and then know when to intervene. And I can tell you that experience had taught me a lot about when to intervene, when not to intervene. There's a system in place for a reason. It's usually trying to do the right thing. Sometimes it gets lost. Sometimes you get lost, but how do you kind of ground yourself and bring it back? And those principles we learn at an early age are, are amazing, right? So that stays with you in all activities. That's remarkable that you had that lesson so early on. I think there's... You know, I have so much, my wife immigrated to the U.S. when she was five and her parents immigrated here, didn't know the language, learned the language. Her father built a business. Her mom's now been a nurse at New York Presbyterian for 25 years. I just have, I have so much respect and admiration for that. And the, like you're saying, the values that were instilled in her as a child impacted the, the person that she became and it is very interesting stuff. I mean, I, I'm interested actually, I mean, you mentioned a few things during, you know, the description of your journey, Naraj, but is there something that sticks out in your mind as one of the most important lessons that you learned along the way personally or professionally and can you think about maybe what life was like before learning that lesson and after? There is always a lot of lessons and there's some core principles as well as technology. So maybe I'll go through one of each. I was fortunate on the core principle side that my, my dad had uh, multiple PhDs in physics, in engineering. Yeah. And he, and he worked for the army as a civilian engineer and he got to do some cool projects that he told me about night vision for the Apache helicopter really high-end stuff, right? But my mother, because being from India, pre-arranged marriages, she only had an eighth grade school. So lots of times that experience of talking to somebody that's highly educated versus somebody who has amazing EQ, my mom, and to distill that information and simplify it was really important. And that was a real important lesson that I learned from a family environment that I apply into the business environment and the technology environment all the time. How do you keep something so simple 
that people can understand and gravitate towards it and build that energy and excitement around it. So it, it's amazing. Lots of times, all of us technologists get so into that technology and all the technical details. It's like, hold on, step back. Let's, let's make sure that the, we're not talking a foreign language. Let's net it down to value. Why do they want to do this? What's that consumer journey? What are some of those most important things? And that piece of it really drives a lot of the success you may or may not have. It was pivotal to my success because being able to translate sophistication or really complex things into something simple and rally. Huge. And that also helps when you're talking to a board, when you're talking to executives, when you're talking to third parties outside to really articulate what you're looking for and then what the value you think it's going to come out of this thing. My business coach always would tell me that, you know, how are you going to make this simple enough that a second grader could understand it? Right. And I've had the experience, right, prior to really, you know, soaking that advice in where I had a really large client at the time, one of my, the largest clients I've ever had. And I, we did some of the best work I've ever done in my career from a consulting standpoint. We were, we met with hundreds of stakeholders and we had thousands of data points and, you know, we just, we were in it and we knew it and we analyzed it and we came up with like millions of dollars of ROI. The assessment and everything that we put together was very complex. It was for a health system that just had a million moving parts. And the way that we relayed our findings was too complex, you know, and the feedback that we, because, and we ultimately, we did well, we gave them the deliverable. Typically when we continue to work with folks and they ended up kind of going in a different direction with someone who came in and they were like, you want to go to there? I take you there. You know, it costs this much and it'll be great. And they were like, yes, you know, and it's like, we were like, what? Like, but I didn't meet them where they were at, you know, and that was the feedback that I got, you know, I needed to like take it down and, and really hold their hand and bring them over the line. You know, what I was doing was like, hey, we know what we're doing, like, let's go, like, you know, and kind of dragging them along. So that was, I think it's relevant to the advice or the, or the lesson that, that you're describing. Yeah, and, and David, what you just described is, let me bring it back to Greystone. And when I started in Greystone, all companies, as they evolve in their digital journey, knowing when to bring the right tool set. If you bring it too early, it's a problem. If you bring it too late, it may not be worth it. So it's kind of figuring out when to kind of introduce those things. And when I was starting at Greystone, the first thing that you need to have is good data, right? How do you get the data warehouse right? How do you work with everybody? And then the second component after that was how do we accelerate the data through the company? And this is where we rolled out a lot of RPAs. And he, here's where the lessons learned came in when we were rolling out RPAs or automations. We went really fast. We had some good ground rules that it has to have a payback period, six to 12 months. It shouldn't be relied on single tool, use the right tool. So we had three tools for automation. And those frameworks that I had put in worked really well. But where the framework didn't work was when I had processed inconsistencies through the business. 
And here I am automating one side and accelerated and showed the weakness that we had some process issues, right? So all of a sudden in that framework, I had to add a new component, like I need a better feedback loop. And this was actually with Steve, the CEO, when we were walking through some of the automations, he was saying, hey, Niraj, don't forget this feedback loop because it's really important. And the feedback loop isn't an IT feedback loop. It's a business and IT feedback loop, right? And in over one business unit, so it wasn't just, hey, I got this automation working in one business unit. It's really a, a big enterprise thing and make sure that the feedback loop is working it. And based on that, we were able to course correct. And now we had an amazing experience with all the RPAs we rolled out. We got to roll out almost 60 of them in one year, which was good. Yeah. And lots of value. All the other disciplines we had in place were, but that that failure of not getting that feedback loop early on when we were doing it kind of derailed us a little bit until we got that incorporated and then it accelerated it. And then we were able to take that lesson learned and incorporate it into our AI rollouts. What are the things we need to do from a gen AI? What are the projects we're doing? So we got, we're, we had the good fortune of rolling out two big gen AI projects and running that feedback loop very early on, bringing them into the discussions very early on with a technology like AI and gen AI, that partnership is really crucial and it needs to be tighter than ever that we're just hand in glove back and forth. And that, that feedback mechanism concept that missed early on, but we were able to incorporate it in. And that was just amazing. That's super cool. How about, I, I, so I want to get Niraj, I want to get more into, you know, what you guys are up to at Greystone. Last thing that I'll ask just about like your career, cause it's been super interesting and, and really thought provoking. Is there a time that, you know, cause we talked about the journey and I like how, like what I heard you saying was almost like the compound interest that your journey can provide, you know, and for me, you know, some of the biggest accruals occurred leading out of very difficult times where I had a, you know, a personal issue that, you know, took me down to my knees, but then I ultimately grew out of that or, you know, a project that hit the rails. I mean, we just described one of the, those kind of instances. Is there a time that sticks out in your mind as you know, a time that a project failed or you had, a, you know, a hardship or something in your journey, but you ultimately took away a profound lesson or something that you use today to serve. Now, it's one of those things. Yeah. As you and I think through some of these things, what are those pivotal points in your life that kind of had that impact? And sometimes it's work-related, sometimes it's personal. It's all intertwined anyway, right? In my culture, you know, being zero generation, going outside your caste is a big thing. And I had to work through my parents and I'm so lucky to have a wonderful wife that's German, Czech descent, fourth generation in Pennsylvania, you know? But boy, when you're at the core of your life and your being and decisions like this have profound implications, I know my parents were extremely unhappy with my decision-making on that to get them through that process, to get them to accept, and this is the right decision, the right forward. That taught me a lot about 
sometimes even on a technology project, that human connection, that human relationship, even though it could be tight as family, is fragile in some ways because of beliefs. And then technology is all about beliefs. Like, how do I unwind my own thinking to get to the new thinking, right? And those of those early on and kind of bring that to the table, I get to apply that all the time because technology waves come and new tools come out. And if we're not able to kind of think through the new way of doing things and bring everybody to that new way of doing things, doesn't work. I, I mean, when we rolled out generative AI, thinking about most people may say, I want to do machine learning. Well, wait a minute, machine learning versus generative AI and LLMs has a different thought process. You don't have to you train a model, you're kind of tweaking a model, right? <laughs> so wait, get, get out of training the model because we don't have to. Let's tweak this model. Let's get the right prompt engineering to make it work. And that divide and, and those life lessons really come in when you have to put that together. And I got to tell you, that, that was a situation that was very difficult, as you'd expect, because you know, you're really going against your family's wishes. You're going out in the total unknown of what's going to happen, but you have a conviction that it's the right thing to do. And, and you kind of bring everybody to that. Sometimes it takes years. <laughs> Sometimes it takes grandchildren, but it's all good, you know? <laughs> That is, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that because it's super impactful and it's relatable and timely, right? Because like you're saying, you're working with the teams to try to encourage an open-mindedness and a willingness to explore new ideas carefully, thoughtfully, I know is something that organizations across the world are, you know, working on right now. David, those things also taught me some interesting things. I'll have to give you an example. I, I mentioned in my journey that I went from a network operator, network analyst to being a VP of operations, right? When I got the role, I didn't know what that role was supposed to do. And you're like, oh, what, what, what does this guy do, right? What does this role do? And fortunately, with the relationships I had built with technology companies and different players, I, I just called up a lot of my network and, and said, hey, I got this role. I want to be successful. I mean, you know, this is, this is, how do I be successful? And they connected me with some amazing VP of operations at massive companies. And all these wonderful people took the time that, okay, this is how you look at a help desk metric. This is how you look at operational metrics. This is what to think about. This is what are those things. And I took those lessons to heart. I still reach out to my peer group industry experts today and say, trying to think about something else. And what's amazing is that culture of caring is not just within our companies, within our families, actually within the world. I mean, yeah, there's gonna be some people that, that may not take your call, but there's a lot more people that'll take the time and sit with you and kind of walk you through what it means. And you have to be the one to be vulnerable and say, hey, look, I just don't know, so let me find out. And those are important things. So our limitation, sometimes we limit ourselves from taking that step to ask, and then taking that step to find out. For me, right, it tra traces back to the three main elements, right? Because you, you mentioned a culture of caring, right? Love, service, and humility. One thing that I take away or, or what you just said reminds me of too is there's, you know, how can I be that mentor for others, right? Like I'm sure you do today now too. 
but and even past that, how am I showing up in the world and bringing that culture of compassion or and connecting connectedness to people that I may have otherwise been indifferent to in the past, you know, because I was so caught up in my own BS or my own self, right? I, I didn't have room to think about other people, but now I flip it on its head and my experience has shown me that the more that I serve others, the more I tend to just be taken care of. I don't even have to worry about it. And then when it comes to the leaders, and I've been lucky enough to have a bunch of them on the podcast, guys like yourself who have started companies, sold companies, worked for Fortune, you know, 100, 500 companies, the ones that I respect the most and the, the, the admire the most, they're just humble guys, right? They're like perennial leaders in the world in their fields, but staying open to learning because especially in technology, but even in a more global sense, different countries, cultures that I haven't explored the universe in general, there's so much I don't know, you know, like, give me a break, even just boiling it down to technology and, and specifically technology is evolving so quickly that there's just no way. Right. There's no way you can, you know, so, so anyway, I just, I agree wholeheartedly that we have to be open and the students of the world, right? Yeah. Basically. And you bring up some interesting things. And when I was with IBM, obviously IBM, Watson was a big blue was one chess, right? And everybody thinks about that chess example all the time in, in technology. Did it stop? humans from playing chess? Not at all. There's more chess players today than ever. And actually it made everybody so much better. So all the chess players have gotten better over time. And how do we use technology to bring everybody's level up, right? And how do we share and collaborate in that way? I remember in the beginning of the year, as generative AI was launching and ChatGPT and what was going on, first thing that came to mind was, hey, I got to talk to the industry trade groups. What are they doing about this new technology? What are they hearing? Are they putting together groups, three trade groups in our industry, the Mortgage Bankers Association at MISMO, NMHC, which is more apartment-centric, and then Realcom, which is more commercial real estate-centric. Reached out to all of them. What are you guys doing? I want to participate. I need to learn about what others are doing, where you have groups of 150 CIOs talking about what they're doing with Gen AI and what it means and such a learning experience because their views and their thought processes and what they have to be to drive that success through their organization and value. And it, that learning is just amazing. And it, it teaches you a lot. And as you said, it keeps you humble because you, when you talk to some super smart people all the time, you say, hold on, that, that guy's cool. I want to talk to him more. And then they build relationships and you wind up calling and meeting them and learning more. Yeah, agreed wholeheartedly. I mean, one of the things that I've been unwinding, because I think with generative AI, especially for certain industries, there's obviously a concern, especially actually specifically with chat GPT, right? That, you know, if not designed properly, my data can be fed into this larger model and then you know, competitors, other organizations, then, you know, subsequently have access to my data, my knowledge, et cetera. 
And there's some, so there's some fear and trepidation there, but the impact that the generative AI and or adaptive communications, right? It open, intentless flows have on customer experience. It's just night and day. Like right now, we're working with a lot of folks that are in the old kind of ML intent-based kind of slog. And I'm, I'm like, pump the brakes, guys. Like, you know, we're going to do this. And then like, you know, three to six months later, you're going to realize like, you know, we're not future-proof anymore. And past that, like, we're going to constantly be thinking of new routes that customers might want to take, or we're going to be needing to build additional attributes that, you know, add intent exponentially. It's just so that was great and it worked, but now we're somewhere else. We don't need to be there anymore. Right. So you described some interesting things. And when we talk about customer journey and how do we make their, their lives better, it's not just our end customer, our employees are our customers too, as well as our vendor partners are our customers in some ways, even though we may be a customer of theirs, they're really a partner of our success. So when I look at that model, it's how do we make that whole process different and frictionless and how do we take away the mundane work? One of the most interesting projects I got to work on was for the insurance industry in the EV world. And you know, most of the EVs today have videos. So when you have a car crash, it's a video. So if you think about the old days, if the insurance company needed to find out what happened on the accident, they basically had your number, they would get the police report, they would call you and interview you go through a process of interpreting what happened, put it together, and then get the claim kind of finished off and all those things, right? But with the video, it's pretty simple. I just analyze the video. I don't need to have these interviews. I don't need, this is reality, right? So how do I use those things? And, and as you described it, the ML was the old way, Jet AI is the new way, and the video is the new way. I got real data from the edge. What can I do with it? How do I make my process so much better and more, more transparent and clear that we all can agree on? And there's less interpretation because you're getting it right from the source. Right. Well, and so, so let's parlay this kind of into, you know, the work you're doing now. Actually, before, so before I do, I always just like to ask, favorite book, either all time or that you've read recently, so I can add it to the DI reading list. It's the old classic in the financial services world, Liar's Poker, right? Mm. <laughs> you can't go back to, at least being in financial services, that's always one of the most more, more interesting books to read. Love it. Yeah, it's a classic for sure. So Naraj, you're, you're you know, CIO at Greystone. You've been there a few years. You guys are clearly up to some really cool stuff. Talk to me a little bit about your vision for the organization as it's derived from the overall mission of Greystone and maybe some more about some of the key initiatives that you guys are working on. No, definitely. And I start off with this, that we have the, the digital journey that Greystone's going through. First was get the data right. There was a lot of effort to get the data right, put it into a data warehouse, so make it available, accessible. The next phase was how do we accelerate the data through the company? So as soon as the customer sends us the data, how do we get RPAs, automations kind of cranking through the company? The next was adding intelligence to those. So we got 
a lot of AI projects now, adding intelligence to those processes and what are things that we can do specifically around work that's kind of mundane and, and repetitive and but it needs more than RPA. It needs intelligence. It needs reading. It needs ability to interpret. And then the next phase that we're going to hit in 2024 is the digital operations phase, which is where because we have so many automations running and AI-enabled automations running, we need to have a digital operations group to say, hey, wait a minute. Is this working right? What are the tweaks we need to have? And the company is just starting to form three digital operations groups, one at the enterprise level, one at op- originations, and one at servicing. You know, I look at it as uh, being from General Motors. Uh, in the old days, when you had a, a manufacturing plant, you had humans doing work. Uh, you know, the tire was being put on by a human. Today, it's a robot. Well, the person that used to put on the tire isn't doing that, but who's watching that robot? Who's watching the quality control? Who's working with robot maker, the technology team to make sure that sometimes when you have to tweak it. So that new thought process, the new future roles that are being created because of all the digitization that's going on. So that journey so far has been kind of cool. And going through that journey gets us to that digital operations today. And that's what we're shooting for in 2024. So we hope to have, you know, two to three times as many RPAs running multiple, you know, up to 20 to 30 AI-enabled processes running, which is kind of cool. I'll have to explain one of the, the ones that we're rolling out. In multifamily lending, underwriters and analysts have to perform what they call as a lease audit. This is where you read the leases, well, you take 10% of the leases of the building, and you have to open up each lease, get the fine data points, start date, who the tenant is, end date, dollar amounts. Lots of times these are handwritten on a form. Sometimes the institutional guys have it perfect. And then you have a rent role that you have to compare against. Well, we've AI enabled that whole process where it goes through the rent role, gets the right units, opens up the leases, performs the function, and generates the spreadsheet that needs to be created for the agency exit. I mean, I just feel bad for the person. Can you imagine if you had a 500-unit building, you had to open up 50 leases? And it's like, oh, this is boring work just to get these little pieces of information. But it's complex because in the old days, you would have to do machine learning on all the different types of leases. Not required with LLMs and Gen AI. You're basically running OCR, getting the data, and having the engine kind of understand the data and put the the, the prompt engineering right to get that data right, which is so amazing. I, I just love the I feel bad for the person that had to open up 50 leases. And I'm so happy that this technology, not, now that role is, what else do we need to do? Is it working right? What are some of the things that the operations will have to review and use with this? I appreciate that you brought up not only the how the role changes, right? So that person is now hopefully operating at a different level, a more strategic level where they can see kind of the forest, so to speak. And then creating new roles as well. Like I remember, and I've given this example on the podcast before. So anybody who's heard me say it, you know, excuse me, but when Lowe's first rolled out automation, like self-checkout, right. And other stores at Lowe's specifically, right. You know, you know, initially when self-checkout got rolled out in general, I was kind of annoyed because I'm like, I'm buying a product here. You know, I want you to check me out, you know, because that's the way it's supposed to be. Damn it. You know, (laughs) But when 
when I'm at Lowe's, right, now the people that were previously tied to a cash register needing to just ring items, you know, which I can easily do myself, right? It takes one motion like this, right? Or a little gun. It's really not that tedious per se for me to do it. Now they can be with me at the point of where I actually need their help, which is when I'm trying to figure out what shelf to put in my bedroom or what screws I need to drill through this type of wall or, you know, whatever. Like they're there in the store floating around supporting customers where they actually need support. Right. So I think that it's just a great example of how, you know, automation and AI will not, they will create new opportunities. They will help folks operate at the, the top of their license, so to speak. And I'm seeing that already. It sounds like you are as well. That's what's fun, right? There's these mundane tasks that we all have to do. And if we can have something take care of that, it always works. I'm one of those that likes to try new things all the time. So I know when autopilots came out in vehicles, I was the first one to hit the button, right? So I'm like, oh, let me see what happens. And, and I live in rural Pennsylvania in Bucks County. It's a lot of windy roads. And I'm like, I'm just curious how this thing works on turns. And I'm an experimenter on the opposite end of the spectrum. My wife, she never puts it on still on the highway. She's like, I don't want to use it. But the fact that we all can use it, try it, works. I like the convenience because it's always, even if I get distracted, it keeps it on the road. It keeps moving and without having to, you know, think through some of those things. And so it's so assistive, right? This technology is so assistive to us as humans. And it's a matter of how we like to use it, what will work. And it for each individual is different. Some people like to try things. Some people may do it later or some people, but it's okay, but it's available. So Naraj, couple last questions for you. I mean, this has been fantastic. One would be, you know, where do you see the, you know, I, you guys are kind of, you know, real estate financial services. Where do you see the industry going in the future? And, or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time in your world? More data collections on the edge, as I call it. So examples could be when I have a property inspection, there's a video and real-time analysis is happening and what needs to get done. There could be, th th those are just interesting business models, right? And it has different views. So when I have a video of a room, that's the same video that I can use to post the listing for when the rental apartment's available. That will be the same video I can use to for escrow, right? So I got the first month escrow sitting in my rent deposit. When I leave and the person takes another video, I can have it automatically check if there's any issues and everybody agrees. So there's these amazing potentials that are coming more than just the, the simple version of language. It's going to be how do we incorporate video, audio, and all those wonderful things to make that experience so much frictionless. Yeah. I love it. Since it is all about data, right? Like I, I love that collecting data at the edge I'm going to use that now but it's true right because in every industry in every instance it's you know how, how am i collecting personal data how am i collecting experiential data and then being able to parlay that and now with generative ai it's just like the possibilities are, are endless so 
Very cool. So Naraj, this has been, like I said, fantastic. Close out the episode. The, the question I like to ask everyone is if you could go back five, 10, even, you know, 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Stay positive and keep looking forward no matter what the situation is, because that's a tough thing mentally to do, especially when you get into difficult times, right? So how to kind of mentally exercise that piece and say, how do I stay positive? How do I look forward? How do I not clam up, actually open up that example of calling other VPs, VP of operations, open up, right? Open up. Don't run towards that problem. Don't run away from that problem. I love that. It's great advice. It really took me a lot of time to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I'll tell you, walking through those difficult times with folks who have gone before me, I mean, it just makes such a huge difference. It, it, so I really hope everyone was listening to that. Naraj, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. No, no, David. Thank you. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.